0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If you're not ready yet, that's fine, because this is the college football podcast to get you ready. Welcome in another edition of the Late Kick Extra podcast, I'm Josh Pate. It is Wednesday, June 15th, the year of our Lord 2022. If you are a Week Zero person, we got under 80 days until kickoff. And around here, we're pretty diehard. So we'll call ourselves Week Zero people. We've got a loaded mailbag this morning. If you want to get in touch with me really quickly, at Late Kick Josh on Twitter, at Late Kick Josh on Instagram. We've got a wide open array, and you know how rarely I use that word, of questions. So we're going to start it off talking about dark horses. Everyone wants one, but no one wants to pick one. Mac and Dino podcast, since they submitted the question, we'll give them a shout out there. They start us off and they ask, when was the last time the media actually got the dark horse team right in the SEC? And the answer is, in short, never. I don't really remember it ever happening. Did anyone pick Missouri back in the mid-20-teens? I don't remember it. Now, These days, it's kind of hard to picture a dark horse. If anyone other than Bama or Georgia are making it to Atlanta, they're a dark horse. I guess in that sense, LSU 2019 ended up being one of, if not the best college football teams of all time. They were a dark horse in the preseason. Well, for almost everyone, longtime viewers of this show back when we were independent, remember we were on that train pretty early, but I'm not going to go as far as to say I picked them to win the West that year. You remember... Oh, I guess it was around this time last year. If you were listening to or watching the show, you remember I caught some heat because I was picking a little-known team out in the Midwest named Iowa State to win the Big 12. I even picked them to go to the playoff. And a lot of you knocked me for it, and I didn't really care. I mean, it's not like there's money riding on that, but that was just the point. Because there was no money riding on it, why not roll the dice? Why not take a risk? When March Madness comes around, everyone's pretty sure all the chalk's not gonna hold. Of course, the great mystery in life is finding which 12 is gonna upset the five. Where are we going to get a 14 over a two or a three or however the math works out there? And my point is, I don't try and pick it there because I don't want my bracket to blow up by me throwing darts at a board. But in this realm, when we're not really putting money on it, yeah, I absolutely try and pick the dark horse. So I tried to pick Iowa State last year. Crashed and burned, fairly notably famously even, because I still get it thrown in my face every day, but we're going to get to SEC media days in about a month, a little over a month, and you'll have the media pick Georgia in the east, and you'll have them pick Alabama in the west, and you'll have this familiar refrain of, oh, why doesn't anyone ever go out on a ledge, go out on a limb? Well, I tried last year. I tried, and I was, I was slandered all over the place. So I, I don't think it's going to happen this year. Uh, I probably will pick those two teams for the record to represent the SEC in Atlanta, Uh, but in the broader scope, think about where we were on the national scale this time last year. Remember what the national championship odds were? Ohio State, clear favorite to win the Big 10, didn't even play for the Big 10 championship. Clemson, clear favorite to win the ACC, didn't even play for the ACC championship. Oklahoma, I wanna say was the number one team in the country, didn't even play for the Big 12 championship. That was last year. I mean, yeah, we dubbed it a renaissance tour and a renaissance season for a reason. My point is, that may have been a little bit of an outlier from the norm, but it is pretty normal for there to be at least one or two preseason favorites to fall by the wayside. I think the great fun this time of year, Review Magazine season, as we like to call it, is finding which of those teams will fall by the wayside. So, I mean, I'm looking at the national championship odds and the SEC championship odds on the screen right now. You got Bama minus 140, Georgia a plus 120, uh, second place team right now in terms of the odds, and then behind them there is a canyon probably a little bit wider than Grand. Even you got a and at plus 1600, and then there's Ole Miss at plus 3000. By the way, how many people nationally would be aware that Ole Miss is the fourth odds-on favorite to win the conference? Not LSU, not Kentucky, not Arkansas. Ole Miss, Arkansas, because of the schedule they play is uh, what, one, two, three, four. What an indictment on the strength of schedule in the SEC West when Arkansas, who I will have rated top 15 in the country to start the year, is the fifth odds-on favorite to win the SEC championship out of their own division. What a nightmare of a schedule, and that's not even mentioning Cincinnati and Brigham Young, they play out of conference. So dark horses will be out there. Maybe it's Arkansas, maybe it's not, but feel free, feel free to pick them. I won't make fun of you. Next up, this morning or afternoon, appreciate you, whatever time you listen in, wherever you listen. One of my favorite things to do is to get your emails and DMs telling me where you listen. We had someone, I think, in Wichita Falls, Texas, on a three-day route going from Jacksonville to, I want to say it was LA, trucker. We got a lot of truck drivers who listen to the show, so appreciate you guys wherever you are. Lakin, or lacking. Angel, there we go. This is a good endpoint, Colin. Lake and Angel next up. If Brent Venables wins the national championship at Oklahoma before Lincoln Riley wins one at USC, does that add pressure to Riley's job performance? Same with similar scenarios. Brian Kelly and Marcus Freeman, Mario Cristobal and Dan Lanning. Checking in from Norman, Oklahoma there. Uh, yeah, of course it does. How can it not? So to be clear now, what the question is, is if Brent Venables comes into Oklahoma, and wins a national championship before Lincoln Riley does, you don't need to overthink the room here. I think you know what's gonna be said, I think I know what's gonna be said, and you and I may even be among the people saying it. And it's the same way, imagine Brian Kelly having been at Notre Dame for a decade, and if Marcus Freeman comes in and he wins a national championship, which is what Brian Kelly got to the playoffs but never got really close to doing himself, Yeah, yeah, I think there would be a word or two said about that. Mario Cristobal, there's a reputation about him out there right now that would only, in the minds of many, be validated if he were to load the cupboard up with elite recruits, but then leave, and then Dan Lanning comes in and actually wins the big one with those recruits. Yeah, a lot of people would say, told you he was a recruiter, but he couldn't win the big one. A lot of people at Notre Dame with Brian Kelly would say, "Mm, told you he was good, but not great. And a lot of people in Norman, Oklahoma would say, told you he was all flash, but no substance. So, yeah. Now, that's the local fan base. The ironic part about this question is nationally, this is one of those instances where the national refrain would sound the same as the zoomed in local refrain there. Uh, Because like we've talked about many times, Lincoln Riley is a guy who moves the needle so much because everyone thinks something about him. There are very few college football fans you walk up to. You could be in Sacramento, California. You could be in Norfolk, Virginia. You walk up to someone and say, Lincoln Riley, your opinion, go. Hardly anyone's saying, nah, take him or leave him. You know, I don't really care either way. That's what you say about Paul Crist at Wisconsin. You don't say that about Lincoln Riley. And so if you were to see Brent Venables, his replacement, win one before he wins one in LA, and that's that's a program, by the way, that he left Oklahoma for voluntarily because presumably it gives him a better shot to succeed than what he had at Oklahoma, and they win, that's a big deal. If Brian Kelly leaves Notre Dame because he says, I wasn't quite getting all the resources I felt like I needed, and so I'm going to a place that gives them to me, and his replacement, who was already on his staff, by the way, in Marcus Freeman, wins before he does at LSU, yeah, that's a really big deal. You could, of course, say the same thing. If you're an Oregon Duck fan, And your guy, Mario Cristobal, leaves you to go home, and he talks about how, I don't really think there's been a comparative analysis as much on this part. I I have not heard Mario Cristobal talk about how Miami compares to Oregon, but yet you can fill in the blank. You don't leave unless you think it's a better situation. So in all three of those cases, Oregon included, if your guy leaves you and his replacement wins one before he does at his presumed better location than yours was, yeah, it's a really big deal. Uh, let's move on. So this is an interesting question here because there's there's kind of a changing tide in college football and college athletics right now. A lot of you have noticed it. We've talked about it a specific way on Late Kick, and this is the kind of way. I haven't talked about NIL in the broad scope, but if you want specific things, uh, we'll do it here. So here's a good question about GMs. With the recent hiring of Alonzo Highsmith at Miami. How do you view the general manager of football role in college football? And do you think it's gonna be more prevalent in athletic departments moving forward? Absolutely, I do. Uh, This has been a couple of years in the making. I thought this was a good idea before NIL. Certainly think it's a good idea afterwards. And really, if you think about the classical general manager role, the general manager's there to do exactly what the job description says manage in a general capacity, oversee pretty much every facet of the operation, but also what does the general manager do at the NFL level? In the NFL, the general manager is handling handling a lot of things uh, that aren't really in the purview of the head coach. It's not what the head coach specializes in. Now at the college level, the reason some coaches prefer the college level is because they can have more control. The trade-off for going to the NFL sometimes is you don't have control. Some, some head coaches have very little say in who their franchise drafts or trades for. Some do, some don't. It's crapshoot. In college, the head coach makes all those calls, and they still will. They, it's not like a general manager comes in and and overrules a head coach on whether they're going to offer a four-star tight end out of Mobile. That's not the way that works. But what can happen and what is happening, because I talked to some of these folks at the college level, is There are a lot of things on your plate now as a head coach that didn't even exist five years ago. Five years ago, if you're the head coach at Wyoming, or you're the head coach at Virginia Tech, and I were to say, hey, how are you doing handling the funds in your collective? What would you have said? You would have asked me what a collective was. That's what you would have done. Well, nowadays, it is a reality. A head coach who's gone through clinics and worked his way up the ranks for 20, 25 years as a grad assistant, to a position coach, to a coordinator, to a lower level head coach, to now a a mid-major and now a high level head coach. They never worried about that stuff. That's not their lane. They know how to get on a grease board. You know, they know how to build a recruiting board. They know how to make the call on third and four. They've gone through that. They haven't gone through a lot of this other stuff. And so instead of trying to relearn things, trying to teach the old dog in the mirror new tricks, you've got the resources available, why don't you just go hire someone and then put all that on their plate and hire someone good enough where you can put it on their plate and then you can feel comfortable saying, all right, you're gonna handle that, right? Good, I'm gonna go over here and do these other things. And that's the role of a general manager now. A general manager is making sure day to day that roster management is in a state that it should be. They are tasked with making sure they monitor the transfer portal. If you know, I need outside linebacker depth, and a kid leaves Michigan State. I need to know about it, and I already need to have my general manager doing his due diligence, knowing who the, our contact is, who's our point of reference, what information and intel do we have. I've got a college scouting department now that that general manager should be overseeing. So the minute that outside linebacker in East Lansing goes into the portal, my college scouting department headed up by my general manager needs to be able to give me at least a bare bones scouting report on that kid so I can determine if he is paid state material. Do we want him or not? Those are some of the tip of the iceberg roles of a general manager you can imagine. But the point is, you're trying to alleviate a lot of the stuff that has no business being on your plate as a head coach. And so that's what Mario's doing with Highsmith. Uh, That's what everybody's doing everybody you can call them director of player personnel you can call them director of football operations you can call them general managers yes there's a different skill set that is needed today in college athletics specifically football than was even needed a decade ago what does that mean for a real world person like the folks listening to this podcast well a lot of you ask how do i get in that world You could of course learn to talk and put together coherent sentences and maybe someone will put you on air. You could learn to coach the game. Or maybe, just maybe, there is a skill set you possess that's coinciding with right place, right time in college athletics, and there are folks like you who are needed inside major operations and major college football programs. So I'd keep my eyes open. I'd pay attention to this stuff, because a lot of you, a lot of you have always wanted to be in college football but you've always thought, well, I just do this, or I just do that. That has nothing to do with college football. It may now, it very well may now. Let's march along here, got a positional question. Hayden asked, what should Billy Napier do with all those stallions in the backfield down in Gainesville? How many transfers are gonna happen after this year? Um, I don't know how you define stallion but you better have run for a thousand yards minimum in a season before I use that word, even with the lowercase s to describe you. Florida doesn't have stallions. Florida has some running backs whose names you know, whose production levels have not reached the point of putting that RB1 label next to any of their names. Potential's there. You're not hearing me poo-poo their potential. Let's just let's wait till it actually happens on the field before we start using Those kinds of terms to describe these guys. Um, What's happening right now is there are a lot of names down there at Florida, uh, but there's a lot less proven production. For example, Demarcus Bowman. You remember him, former five-star guy, went to Clemson. Now he's transferred to Florida. Hasn't proven anything. But he will get benefit of the doubt because he used to have a lot of stars next to his name. And so it's natural. I do it too. In the back of my mind, I think about that when I think about Demarcus Bowman. Hasn't had a chance, well, he's had a chance, he hasn't proven it yet. Um, Nyquan Wright, this guy who's really versatile, dual threat in terms of a running back, which means he can catch the ball out of the backfield. He's not been a guy that's had his explosive season yet. Uh, Lorenzo Lingard, ditto. I happen to think Montrell Johnson, who is the running back that's transferring with Billy Napier from Louisiana, Lafayette, they don't like you saying the uh, Lafayette part there, the locals don't, but we have to whisper it for national purposes. I think he has the best chance of ending up being their feature tailback. If you go off track record, he's the guy who has shouldered um, as close to a running back one load as any of these guys have. So I know there are a lot of names there, but this wouldn't be the first time that we've entered a season looking at a lot of names we recognize. I ask you this. If I did not allow you to follow recruiting, and therefore all you knew about guys on a roster were what you've seen them do in a game, all these guys have played before, how highly would you think of this Florida running back room? And the answer is not nearly as highly. So you are defaulting, again, same way as a lot of us do, back to what their recruiting rankings were and the potential that you always thought they had that you still think they have. I'm saying if they're a true freshman, that's fine. But at some point, reputation and expectation out of high school has to give way to, what your eyeballs have actually seen them do on the field. And we've had mixed results from this group is all I'm saying. So are, are they good enough to get Florida into the seven-win range? Sure they are. I think we want more than that down there. I think if we use the term stallion, we're looking for them to be more than seven-win caliber. So I think there's a little ways to go there. They still got a lot to sort out during fall camp. You know, there's a lot going on in postseason play in baseball right now. And some of you have taken notice. And we had a question about it. I, knew, I probably knew this was coming, but I was going to wait for one of you to ask it. Stewart asked, do you think this year's Omaha 8 serves as a warning of what a 12-team playoff in college football will look like? Half of the field is from the SEC West. Let's do a quick fact check here. I'm going to pop the paper so you know it's serious. Auburn, yep, SEC West. Uh, this is the College Baseball World Series field for those unfamiliar. Auburn, Texas A&M, yep, they're there. Arkansas, uh uh-huh, Ole Miss. I presume that these are the four SEC West teams that you are referencing, but I see Oklahoma, who's gonna be in the SEC in about five minutes. I see them there. I see Texas, also headed to the Southeastern Conference in about five minutes. If I really wanted to aggravate people, I could claim that six of eight finalists in Omaha are SEC teams. Now, I'm not one to aggravate. You know me better than that, but I will ask this. I was talking with a buddy on the phone last night, and we were workshopping what the college football playoff will be like if it eventually expands to 12. There is a group of expansionists out there who believe that a conference championship should be a requirement before you make the playoff, and they are not fans of auto bids, and the reason is this, because if you don't have auto bids and you just got at-large spot after at-large spot after at-large spot, you run the risk of the dominant conference, which is right now the SEC, loading up the playoff with all of their teams. Now, I've always believed that the playoffs should just be reserved for the best teams. So you know my stance on this. I'm not a fan of expansion. And even if you expand, I hate auto bids. I just want the best teams in the playoff. But I understand the argument to the contrary. Well, here's reality. You're not going to get your expanded playoff without sign off from the SEC. And I think it's been made crystal clear at this point, Greg Sankey, commissioner of the SEC, is not signing off on any playoff that doesn't at least have as many at-large spots as auto-bid spots. So if you have six auto-bid spots for conference champs, you're going to at least have six at-large spots. Because he looks at it and he's right when he says this, he says, we're doing fine at four, we don't need to expand. So if we voluntarily sign off on your expansion, it's going to have to work for us. It's the Hulk Hogan syndrome. If you, get a, if you get a stroke of the chin and that doesn't work for me, brother, well, you're not doing it because Hulk Hogan makes the call, at least in circa 1988 WWF he does. And, um, you know, I've probably been waiting too long to make this comparison, but Greg Sankey in 2022 is late 80s Hulk Hogan as it relates to college football. And having said that, I go back to the conversation I was having with a buddy last night with all those at large spots, if we have a 12 team field, I want you to imagine this. Don't think for a second this can't happen because it absolutely could. Let's just say um, from the SEC, let's say Georgia and Alabama were scheduled to play in the regular season and they played and let's say Georgia won 31 to 27. And then let's say they met in the SEC championship game and Georgia won again, 31 to 27, close games. Bama is a two loss team there. Both of their losses are probably to the number one team in the country. They're not falling out of the top 12. They're they're nowhere close to falling out of the top 12. So Bama's in the playoff. You've seen them get two cracks at the number one team. They're still in the playoff because your playoff field's too big. You wanted this. So let's follow through to the logical conclusion because you and I both know what happens when rosters that deep get in the playoff, they eventually meet again. What would your world be? As an expansionist, I'm not making fun of you guys, I'm just asking you in your, your utopian expanded playoff world, what happens when teams that have already met twice meet a third time, maybe for a national championship, who knows, and the other team wins? Bama wins at 31-30 that time. How validated would you feel? Because I listen to you even when we get one rematch, which we just got this past year, what would you do if we got a, what would we call that, a double rematch? We've never even had to use the terminology before. What would you do? Because you, you would be watching a product that you sold yourself on as being the answer to all of college football's problems. We, we got the expanded playoffs, so we made the regular season more meaningful because there are more impactful games. Well, that Alabama-Georgia game sure doesn't carry any meaning, does it? And we made conference championships matter because we've got the auto bids here. Well, that Georgia-Bama game doesn't sound like it mattered a whole lot. And then we get great playoff matchups. Oh, wait, those teams who already played twice are playing again here. So my question, which is going to be rhetorical because we have to move on, my question is, when that happens, you don't have any further answers. You can't propose a solution to where, well, if a team loses in their conference championship game, they're not allowed in. Because the most powerful conference is not going to sign off on it. You're never going to say you have to be a conference champ to get in. Because the most powerful conference is not going to sign off on it. Hogan says no. And once Hogan says no, you're going to have the door open for this sort of thing. Ohio State, you know, in in previous years, you get Ohio State to slip up a couple of times in the regular season. Good. They're out of the way. Now maybe one of us can win the title. In this world, all it means is Ohio State's a nine seed. And then they get to take an underachieving but supremely talented roster and let them rest up and let them heal up. And they get a reprieve, and they get a second chance. And so almost, here's what it starts feeling like for those elite teams. It feels like the season starts in December. Because if you've got rosters as deep as Ohio State and Georgia and Bama, do you know what it's going to take to keep them out of the playoff? And so I'm looking at this college baseball thing right now. The structures of the sport are like apples to bowling balls. So I'm not comparing the sports. I'm just saying there are some folks who don't like the current product headed to Omaha you're going to like college football's expanded playoff a lot less because there's infinitely more parity in baseball than there will ever be in football. You cannot, for the life of yourself, predict what's going to happen in college baseball. Football's a little bit different, but baseball, predicting that sport is like predicting when this is going to happen. They gave me a seven out of 10 in the control room on that ad toss. I thought it was some of my best work, but if you saw it coming, you saw it coming. I think you're lying, but if you saw it coming, I'll, I guess, take your word for it. Uh, Let's get back to the mailbag here. Brandon, fantastic question. What is your favorite name for a college football game? Mine would be the Holy War. It's ironic because that's one of my very favorites, and I consider myself a failure in life for having not been to the game yet. The Holy War is Brigham Young versus Utah. I think it's been long enough, and I think we have gained a large enough new audience that I need to remind you, I do not use the acronym associated with Brigham Young because I cannot say the why. A couple of you have asked about this over the last week. I have trouble saying the why. When I say it, it sounds like this, BYU. It's just, it's just unnatural for me. It's like trying to hit left-handed. It's like trying to juggle. If you can't, I, I, I can't draw. And yet I have a better time drawing than I do saying the acronym. So Brigham Young versus Utah. Every time I've watched this game, and I was a kid growing up in the South, I would watch that game. It felt like a game that matched the intensity and the hatred, which can be beautiful in the right context, of the games that I grew up watching. You know, I grew up smack dab in the middle of Bama Auburn and uh, Georgia Auburn, because I grew up right on the Chattahoochee River in Columbus, Georgia, and so it's a perfect It's very underrated. Columbus, as a pinpoint on a map, is a very underrated place to be situated in the college football sphere anyway. So the holy war is first. Then I want to go off the radar because I think the best overall name for a college football game is Iowa State versus Kansas State. And I don't know that a lot of you are aware. Even some hardcore folks now, you're listening to a college football podcast in June, so you are clearly about this life. Do you know what the Iowa State-Kansas State game is called? It's called Farmageddon. I don't know how it gets any better. I can't believe it's not a bigger name. I can't believe that somebody didn't steal the name and attach it to a bigger, more high-profile game. When we were at the Iowa State-Iowa game this past year, one of our diehard fans pulled me off to the side after the game was ended. And he's an Iowa State fan, so the afternoon did not go the way he wanted it to. But he was, he was ecstatic to meet us. We were standing there. I was talking to him on the field afterwards, and he said, I want to thank you for spending so much time talking about the Iowa-Iowa State game, because I'm a kid who grew up in Iowa. This is him talking to me. He said, I grew up in Iowa, and man, I know a lot of people talk about Ohio State-Michigan, the game. I don't know a lot of to- people talk about the Iron Bowl, Alabama-Auburn. He said, I just want to win Farmageddon. Those were his exact words to me. So I don't care about the Iron Bowl. I don't care about the game. I just want to win Farmageddon. And that stuck with me because the name Farmageddon, I think it should be, it should be a movie that Michael Bay made 20 years ago. That's what I think Farmageddon should be. Uh, next up is the third Saturday in October, and that's Alabama versus Tennessee. I've spoken my piece on this many times, but like I just said five minutes ago, we got a sizable new audience. A lot of you are college age and I know that you are unaware that this was at one point one of the biggest rivalries in the country. It was the biggest rivalry in the SEC. In fact, children, how shocked would you be if I told you there is a portion of the Alabama fan base, 50 or 60, 70 years old, that still consider Tennessee their biggest rival, not Auburn. I know nationally you hear about the Iron Bowl, but that's only because that game's been competitive. Bama has rolled Tennessee something like 15 years in a row, and so no one who's 22 years old is even aware that this is a rivalry. Third Saturday in October is a phenomenal name for a rivalry, and this was the SEC's premier rivalry for a long time. When you talk about the days of General Nealon and you talk about Bear Bryant, Bryant played at Bama and even then had it ingrained in him that I want the absolute worst of the worst things in the world to happen to the folks in Knoxville. He did not prioritize the Auburn game nearly as much as he prioritized the Tennessee game. I say all that to say, when you hear me speak fondly of Tennessee on the show, when you hear me sort of kind of, kind of subtly root for him and try and juke him in the ribs to try and kickstart the program, it's selfish. It's just because I want the rivalry back. Third Saturday in October is a great name. And Red River Shootout's a great name. Uh, Oklahoma Texas we got to experience it this past year for the first time and i have experienced many things in college football as i'm sure a lot of you have that have been hyped up one of the biggest fears in in the modern hype age in general is you're going to experience something that received a lot of hype and it's not going to live up to it you've been there i've been there we've all been there well if you were at this game it lived up to it and dare i say exceeded it i i came home You know, like I said, I grew up in Georgia. So I came home and the first thing a lot of my buddies wanted to do is they wanted to text me and they wanted to know how did that compare to Jacksonville? Because that's where Georgia and Florida play every year. That is the SEC's neutral site game. That's the rough equivalent of what the Big 12 has with OU Texas. And they got all pissy with me because I told them it's better than Georgia, Florida. I don't know what else to tell you guys. It's better than Georgia, Florida. I'm not knocking Georgia, Florida. On a scale of one to ten, it's a solid nine. But that what I experienced in Dallas was pretty close to perfect. It helped that it was a very very close back and forth game. Yeah, that helped. But if you took me off the field during live action and you just had me experience the ambiance, that was enough. So then you add in a classic, an all timer, twenty eight to three or something like that was the score at one point for Texas, and they still lose the game. So that was that was awesome. Uh, but other college football rivalry games, I'm looking on the screen. If you watch some of these individual videos on YouTube, you can see this. We got Pitt and West Virginia who are renewing the backyard brawl this year. The war on I-4 is one I forgot about. Uh, that's Central Florida and South Florida. That is a really, really good name. Uh, the, see, the, the sanitization of the sport disgusts me. Florida, Georgia, for about 5 million years, was called the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. And then... One person somewhere decided that it shouldn't be called that anymore, and they tried to scrub it from history. but yet, everybody still calls it that. It's kind of like the Red River shootout. Everyone still calls it that. Um, so whatever. 100 miles of hate between MTSU and Western Kentucky, very good. I think Rocky Mountain Showdown could be better between Colorado and Colorado State. I think the name could be better. And we got some very creative minds out there in the Rocky Mountain state, so I think we can do better than that. In fact, if I'm going to give out a challenge today, that's my challenge. Right, here's a little side challenge. Pate State needs a rival. And so, whoops, is it going to be? That's the question. We move on. Let's talk about pressure. We can't get through a podcast without pressure. Question, Jimbo Fisher has an average recruiting ranking of 4.5 per class. Yes, he does. We talked about that the other night. The question continues. Yet he has won no titles and finished eight and four last year. He's talking about at Texas A&M. Is the pressure more than Kirby Smart was under at Georgia? It's comparable. The difference between Kirby and Jimbo is, Jimbo Fisher's already won a title. A&M fans don't care about that because it didn't happen on their watch, on their dime. So maybe in that sense, it has been like a scrub of the etch-a-sketch and once you're in College Station, you start your body of work over. Kirby was under a lot of pressure, a whole lot of pressure. Because you know, leading up to this past year, and they won the title, so it's all a moot point, but leading up to this past year, I thought that when they started to roll, I I remember this vividly, it was early November, I did a segment about it. Georgia's rolling, and Bama's lost to Texas A&M, and Bama's looked vulnerable, several points during the season. And remember, Georgia was the number one team, And they had already secured their their, uh, SEC championship game berth. And we knew it was going to be Bama versus Georgia. And that has been the absolute nexus in the Georgia universe. Nick Saban and Alabama. If not for them, folks rightfully believe Kirby already would have had a title. Then again, without Saban, do you have Kirby? So that's a little side point. But you have got a tailor-made situation. And all of November was leading up to that game in Atlanta. And so you've got the best Georgia team you've had under Kirby Smart. Bama almost lost to Florida. They did lose to a and They barely got by Auburn somehow, some way. And so you're going to get a reeling Alabama team in Atlanta. No run game. And it's, it's right there in your backyard. You've got to get it done. And they didn't get it done in Atlanta. They lost to Alabama in the SEC Championship game. I don't think there's ever been more pressure on a coach. Than there was for that month or that three-week period, I guess, leading up to Kirby Smart in Georgia going into the playoff against Michigan, and they just they splattered Michigan all over Miami. But then they get a rematch opportunity with Alabama, and they got the job done. But that month buildup, you know, if that game in Indianapolis would have turned out different, it would have been uncomfortable. They would have had a great season. Their only two losses would have been to the national champion, obviously it would have been so uncomfortable. So anyway, that's all said and done now. That's, that's in the past, he won it. I think once that happened, a lot of the pressure in the SEC shifted over to Jimbo Fisher. I think we did a segment on this too. I said a lot of the things they were saying and they were gonna say about Kirby, they're just gonna say about Jimbo now. He's a guy that's got all the resources he's asked for. Uh, he's recruited year over year over year now at a high level. He's got everything in front of him. He's gotta get it done, and if he doesn't get it done, there's no more room for excuse making. There's nothing that that guy can ask for that we haven't given him, if if we are Texas A&M. And so, you know, he's been there since 18, and this is his fifth year. They've got a four-year rolling recruiting average of, I think it's like 4.7, but the point is, it's inside the top five. Their lowest rated recruiting class has been number eight in the country over the last four years. They got two quarterbacks that they believe are good enough to win with. You know what they just signed. Uh, they've got, I think, a favorable enough schedule because although they go to Alabama, Arkansas' neutral site, Ole Miss and Florida are both at home, LSU's at home. So I think the toughest part of their schedule this year, being AM, is the fact that they play Arkansas and Dallas, which is a road game. It's, you have to travel, that's what I'm saying. And then you've got to travel to Starkville the next week, and then you've got to travel to Tuscaloosa the week after that then you get a bye. I don't, I don't believe that's smart. I don't believe the conference should allow teams to go on the road three weeks in a row. But having said all that, I say, yeah, there's a lot of pressure on Jimbo Fisher. But there are different kinds of pressure. This is not a job security pressure. This is competitive pressure. It's kind of like privilege pressure. It's the kind of pressure you get into this game to experience. Because if you're not feeling that kind of pressure, it either means people don't expect enough out of you, or you're not at a place where you even have the kind of resources to get into that conversation. Well, Jimbo checks both of those boxes. So he's in a good place. A lot of folks would trade places with him right now. Uh, Let's, we got time for one more. Yeah, we got time for one more. This one's kind of loaded. Everyone's got an opinion on blue bloods out there. How do you define one? We were talking about this earlier. I'll ask the question here and then you can answer along with me. The question from Smyrna is, are Blue Blood programs actually good for the sport? It seems like the people that advocate for these programs are elitist. Well, I feel attacked. And they do not like when a new team is on the rise, a.k.a. Clemson before they won it all. He checking in, or He's checking in from San Antonio, Texas. Um, am I an elitist? I don't dress like one. But maybe that's just the disguise. Because I root for these teams. Maybe it's because they do better traffic for us. I don't want to sound so self-centered as to think that that's the, the only motivation we have around here. I'll tell you, that's a joke, because here's where, where I seriously am. I'll tell you why I like Blue Blood programs. Because they exhibit the characteristics I believe in in college football. This is not a parody-driven sport. This will always be a top-heavy sport. However, I think a seat at the head table is available to many, many more of you out there than you've been led to believe. You've been led to believe that head table, that tier one table in college football, is accessible for about three or four big brands out there, and then the door's closed and it's locked and they threw away the key and you're never allowed to access it. But I've always believed that's BS. Because if this sport ever really wanted to tilt itself in favor of someone, they wouldn't choose teams in random small market Locations like Clemson, South Carolina, or Tuscaloosa, Alabama, why would they do that? That makes no sense. What happened is, pay attention to this next part, a long, long time ago, sounds like a Don McLean song, a long, long time ago, people in Tuscaloosa, or people in Columbus, or South Bend, those people decided, we're going to take this sport really seriously, and we're going to invest year over year, which became decade over decade, in in the infrastructure. We're gonna build buildings. Uh, We're going to raise money for, at that point, unlimited scholarships, but we're going to have very, very nice facilities. Everything here is gonna be done first class. We're gonna pay to promote our brand. We're gonna really believe in the marketing aspect. And ultimately, we are going to be a driver. We're not gonna be a passenger. We're gonna be a driver in this whole operation. And they became blue bloods. And then people who were 20 years old, watching them on TV, became 40 years old and they were sports writers. And then they set narratives that once they were 70 years old, the coming generations would adopt and voila, you got a blue blood. But my question is, who did it in a cheap way? Who, who accessed a seat at that table in an underhanded sort of illegitimate way? I don't see anyone. You don't have to like these teams. I'm not asking you to do that, Uh, quite the opposite. You can hate them all you want to. I'm saying, look at what it takes to attain that status, but then I'm gonna ask you the follow-up. If you think you're closed off to that, why was LSU able to do what they did in 2019, which was come out of nowhere and win a national championship? Why was Clemson able to do what they did in the 20 teens? They were able to do it because it's possible for a lot of folks to do, not anyone, because there is a certain baseline of resource you have to have access to. There's a baseline of investment you have to have. But if you have those things, you can do do everything they've done at Alabama in College Station, Texas. You can do everything they've done at Alabama in Gainesville, Florida, or in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, or Clemson, South Carolina. Well, Clemson actually started doing it. They had not done anything along those lines and then all of a sudden they started doing all those things. What happened? Well, they had a culture that they year over year believed in, they invested in, they had the most out of the box idea, which was to make Dabo Swinney a head coach. No one believed in him. Half the folks up there didn't believe in him, but the right people did. They elevated him, they left him alone. He was not an overnight success, but they kept building, kept building, kept building. They thought they were there a couple of times and got knocked down but then they finally get a kid out of Gainesville, Georgia, by the name of Deshaun Watson. He's in the news for other reasons now, but back then he was just a dynamite college football player. And Deshaun Watson takes them to a national championship game, surrounded by really good talent, because they had been recruiting year over year, and they miss out one year, then they beat Bama the next year, and then it's off to the races. And Clemson has a seat at the head table. Now, I wouldn't consider them a blue blood at that point, nor would I right now, just because I think it takes, it takes years and years and years. It takes year over year, decade over decade production to achieve that status. But my point is, Clemson showed you, you can get access to that group. You can, you can access that tier. There are extra seats there. You may have to go off in the corner and pick one up and bring it to the table, but you can make your own seat at that table. Here's what I am against. When you think someone's pushing back on it, I, I'm all for having as many blue bloods as possible in the sport. What I'm against is trying to reverse engineer the process. Trying to say, okay, let's, let's expand a playoff so we can get more blue bloods. Or you know, even with the four team format, let's sit here and argue that you are what your record says you are. So as long as you're undefeated, you deserve a spot in. And this is used at the G5 level a lot of times to try and argue that this, this undefeated team here belongs in over this one loss team over there. And then the retort is, well, how are we ever gonna get fresh blood? If we don't give them a shot, you earn it. You earn it. And then comes the logical follow-up of, well, they went undefeated. How much more can they do to earn it? Well, my answer sometimes is there's nothing they can do. Because at the G5 level, you're not playing the same level of ball as they're playing at some of the Power 5 level. So I've always believed in a separate playoff. But that's an entirely different rabbit hole we can go down. My point is, I have argued against Central Florida in the past making the playoff but I'm a huge fan of what Central Florida's doing. Do you notice what they're doing? They're doing what it takes to get to the head table. They invest year over year. They positioned themselves and shrewdly marketed themselves enough to where, now where are they headed? They're headed to the Big 12 next year. So they achieved Power 5 status, and now until eternity, if Central Florida does run the table, guess what they're going to be in prime position to be? A playoff team which caches playoff checks, which goes back into the program if you understand how to manage your money. And then all of a sudden, Central Florida's a big player. Central Florida football right now is a better job and a better destination than many Power Five programs. But to get to that head table, to achieve what we call blue blood status, it doesn't happen overnight. You don't pop a team in a microwave and get a blue blood out two minutes later. This is not popcorn. That's not the way that works. But it is attainable. And, and it's attainable for many more programs out there you've been led to believe what you have is you have some underachieving programs out there who horribly mismanage the hiring process and they can't spell economics much less have sound financial principle and instead of taking responsibility they sell you on the idea that well the sports just tilted against us no it's not your own administration is tilted against you but it's a lot easier as we often say to look out the window in the front yard and, and blame them, blame the folks out there, than it is to blame the dude in the mirror who screwed up the budget and mismanaged the last three head coaching hires. Yeah, it's a lot easier to do that. So blame the man, just blame the machine. Don't blame the, don't blame the mirror. Really good uh, show today. Um, didn't know how long we would go, but I think it was a nice healthy show. I really appreciate you guys subscribing. Our numbers are great, great, great. We're driving to 100,000 on the YouTube channel. Uh, we are We're sitting in an incredible position in the podcast charts too. So thank you so much. Just continue to share the show. Show's gonna stay free, inflation-proof show. Probably the only thing in your life that is inflation-proof at the moment will be late kick because it's gonna cost the same thing this time next year as it does right now. And that is due in large part, maybe even whole part, to you because you are our marketing department. So continue to do whatever it is you've already been doing. We thank you. for director Colin, for producer Jesse. I'm Josh Bates. Have yourselves a great rest of your day and God bless. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. Are you still listening? Good. Take a deep breath.